I suppose I love that it's constantly humbling. You, there's nothing that you ever know 100%. You know, as soon as you get good at something, there's something else to learn or there's another thing at play that can affect it, you know. Every, every single challenge is a really, really humbling experience. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We've seen a lot of broken dreams and career changes during the last two years, but we've also witnessed fight, determination, and a never-say-die attitude. We've seen incredible innovation and a willingness to take on and create a new world of hospitality from adversity. What does this new world of hospitality look like? Alex Pritchard is the culinary director of Icebergs. Alex, how are you? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? Good. I know you do much more than just uh, just icebergs. You're a pretty busy guy. What's what's the state of play for you at the moment, mate? There's a, there's a bit on. So look, icebergs is in its twentieth year at the moment, which is pretty exciting, and you know, also pretty incredible for any restaurant in this day and age, let alone one that's managed to keep two hats the entire time. So we've just shut for renovations for three to four months, which is you know, pretty pretty in need for a, a restaurant that's essentially on top of the ocean that's 20 years old. It, it doesn't age gracefully. <laughs> um, yeah, look, so we've, got, so we've got that on the go, which is very, very exciting. Um, we're also working on an Iceberg's 20th anniversary book, which is pretty incredible as well. I can't go into too much detail on that because Mo- Morris has got to be the one to, um, to release the info on that, but that's a very exciting one and as with anything with Morris he doesn't sleep at all so there's a million different projects on the go we've launched uh, Belongio Beach Italian food up in Byron Bay working on a second venue up there we've just taken over the um, Intercon in Double Bay which is very yeah it's very very exciting Um, doing a hotel is always something Morris has wanted to do and for me it's a bit of fun too you know being a chef and doing um, a room service menu and a mini bar menu, that stuff's really exciting. It's fun. You know, how many times have you sat in a hotel room and gotten room service and gone, oh, God, I wish they didn't put the salad inside the burger, inside the hot box before they took it up to the room? <laughs> yeah, so, look, there's there's that on. And then also in the future working on um, Jackson's on George with Morris as well. But as with anything, I- Icebergs is um, my main focus. Well, as you mentioned, Morris never sleeps and you're involved in so many of the projects that he does. What's what's the sense at the moment? It's been a pretty turbulent couple of years, but um, what does it feel like for you at the moment with the industry and, and what's ahead? Look, it feels good. And the, the biggest thing for me is seeing people coming out the other side of all the horrible things we've been through and wanting to open restaurants and seeing a future in this. I think is pretty amazing in the face of so many challenges and so much adversity at the moment to have people opening new venues and especially someone like Morris that's, you know, done so many things over the years, still going, no, nah, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do that. It's pretty incredible and it's it's very inspiring for the people below you. I mean, we've had – I've been pretty lucky at Icebergs where most of my sous chefs have been there for four or five years with me now. And, the yeah, and, look, I guess that's a testament to what Icebergs does. I mean, it kind of it captures you. I originally went there. I was meant to be there for three months over the summer when Monty first took over 
I was just meant to help him out through the summer, be there for three months and then move to Paris. And then I'm in my eighth year there now. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's a place and a, and, a, and a culture that kind of just captures you and you, and you, and you don't want to leave and you want to, you want to keep growing with it. And that's, that's, I think, one key thing for, for Morris and everything he's doing at the moment is giving growth for those people around us. I mean, we're, we're working on opening a bakery that um, our pastry chef, Brittany Smith, is going to be involved in with us, you know. Then, um, yeah, then each of these venues we're looking at opening is, I guess, progression for, for these sous chefs to be able to move into and, and grow into their own roles. Icebergs, as you mentioned, it's celebrating 20 years and there's been um, many different uh, chefs running the ship there. T- tell us about your approach. Um, was there an obligation to the past with what Icebergs were doing and moving it forward? What's been your approach with the food? Well, I think I think the exciting thing about icebergs, and particularly, I guess, r- running the ship there, is that Morris gives you a very general brief, and then trusts you to to run with that brief in your own, in your own way. So, I guess over over the years, it has been you know incredibly Italian. Then Monty came on board, and it, it got a bit of a bit more of a, a local produce focus. Then I came on board, and it's probably a bit more, as Morris says, Italo Oz at the moment. You know, and that's just a natural progression of the the brief that constantly brings every dish back is flavors Morris's mother would recognize, but food she'd never cook. Yeah, which is a you know it's a very very simple sentence, but it grounds everything so well because every single dish I do there, some might not necessarily fit into the traditional Italian brief at all, but it can still capture that same essence of that brief and going oh if Morris's mum ate this would she recognize the flavors she might not necessarily know exactly what they are but you know if if morris's mum eats a risotto that's made with a bit of exo sauce she will still recognize those those flavor notes might not necessarily know exactly what it is but it's that ground it's that grounding of everything we do and i suppose it's been a a pretty interesting time we've we've i guess been held back by the kitchen for a number of years for a restaurant that's so big everyone thinks we've got this huge 11 madison style incredible kitchen you know a thousand stagiaires out the back doing a million different things no it's a, it's it's a very very pokey and old kitchen as they were designed 20 years ago do you, do you have any examples of uh, a dish or two that exemplifies what you were talking about in regards to uh, Morris's mother and the new approach to food. Yeah, look, definitely. So what, one that's been a, a staple on the menu that Morris ate for the first time and I thought he was going to hate, it was actually a, a Koshiakari risotto. So we get the, um, the rice from the Randall family up in Griffith and then we do a risotto base that's made with some exo sauce and then from there we just finish the risotto with, with butter and a bit of, um, a bit of shellfish stock and then finish it with raw scarlet prawns on the top and some oxalis. Now, out, out of all of those things, there's not a single ingredient in there that's necessarily Italian, you know, but the, the flavour profile still matches something that you would eat in Italy. And I guess that's where my, my stage of icebergs is, is obviously I'm Australian and I was lucky enough to grow up in one of the best produce regions in the country. So... My version of that is doing food that tastes like here and now where we are, you know, keep keeping to that same ground in brief, but wanting to cook food that's made with produce that's grown exceptionally and where we are.
you briefly mentioned the region that you grew up in. Take us back to that time when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Look, I, I grew up in a in a household where both my parents were teachers. I grew up in Currajong in the base of the Blue Mountains in the Hawkesbury region in New South Wales. And as a kid there, you don't recognise what an incredible region for, for growing food it is. Like my, A lot of the produce I use in the restaurant now comes from there. But as a kid, you don't realise that. And it's kind of... It's almost a bit isolating, especially back then in terms of food. Like I, I never ate sushi or raw fish or, or beef or like raw beef or oysters or anything like that until I, until I moved into Sydney. You know, I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never forget in the middle of service at Hugo's, I think I was about 15 years old at the time, Massimo Melia that was the executive chef. I think he knew I was a little bit of a kind of bogan country kid. I'd probably never eaten an oyster before. So he comes up to me in the middle of service and he goes, oh, the oysters are really good today, aren't they? And I, I just blindly started nodding, going, yeah, yeah, chef, they're amazing. And he hands me one and I, I, I shoved it in my mouth and I, I was he was just staring at me, waiting for me to spit it out. And I just had to kind of swallow it. I go, yeah, amazing. And then he goes, do you want another? <laughs> And he, and and he knew, and I and later on, I probably went, oh yeah, he he, he knew I'd never eat rice. <laughs> well, I know Massimo had a huge influence on you, which I want to get to. But where, where were the first steps into uh, a commercial kitchen for you? So I kind of I stumbled into it by accident. Like I, for for a kid that's had both parents being teachers, I absolutely hated school. It just wasn't something I enjoyed at all. And there were, there were very, very few subjects that I, um, I necessarily loved. And I, I happened to fall into doing um, hospitality in high school purely because and it's a bit of an embarrassing story, to be honest with you. Me, me and my best mate in high school both went, oh, shit, what subjects do we want to choose? And then all the cute girls in high school were doing, like, commercial cookery. So we went, screw it, let's just do that. And then I happened, I, it happened to be a class that I absolutely loved. And he, and my commercial cookery teachers went, oh look, you you obviously this obviously really really excites you. You should do something. And then all the rest of the teachers wanted any any excuse to get me out of school as possible. So I ended up doing a lot of work experience at different restaurants around the area. I mean, you know, I did I did work experience in a in an RSL club for a little bit. I then, you know, did work experience in a wedding function centre. And then I was lucky enough to do some work experience at Lockheel House, which was an absolutely incredible restaurant. You know, it, um, it had two hats and one regional restaurant of the year and most sustainable and a, a number of different accolades. And that just happened to be, you know, 15 minutes from where I lived. So that kind of triggered a bit of a, a curiosity in me. And then from there, I just went, well, hang on, this can be this can be something that one gets gets me out of this area. But two, you know, I reckon if I work really, really hard, I can make something of myself. Tell us about the move to Sydney. You mentioned you were 15 uh, working with Massimo Mille. Um, what was it like that period of time for you? Was it challenging? Yeah, it was It was definitely challenging because, you know, I, I'd told everyone from when I was 12 years old all I wanted to do was leave school and work. That was just my mindset. <laughs> but you, you definitely don't realise then how much growing up and learning you still have to do. So, you know, moving to Sydney, especially when I remember the bus, I had no idea how to, like, pay for a bus. Because, you you know, coming from a country town, you'd never gotten a bus anywhere in your life. 
So I, I remember getting on the bus on like military road in Mossman trying to go to Manly and I just went, oh, I want to go to the beach. And the guy went, what beach? And I was like, oh, I, th- I think Manly. And he goes, where in Manly? And then like, I, 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 I think I just tried to hand him like a bunch of coins or something. Like I, it's just, it's just small weird things like that, that you have absolutely no idea about, you know? And it, it's just a, it's a funny learning process. And it was, what it was, was constantly humbling. No ma- it seemed like for years and years, no matter what I did, it would be wrong or I'd have something to learn. And that was, that was a really, really good process to go through. And I was lucky enough to have, um, have people around me that through, through those stages would see something in me and go, nah, look, let's, let's give this kid a shot. You worked with Massimo Mealy uh, at Hugo's, but you, you also lived with him and forged a great relationship. T- tell us about, um, about that relationship. Yeah, look, he, he was pretty incredible to me, to be honest with you, and especially a kid being, you know, 15 years old, working in a kitchen, figuring things out in life. I mean, like, it wouldn't have been easy for him by, by any stretch of the imagination. And he went out of his way constantly to try and um, support me and, and, and nurture me and get me to a point where I could be successful. I mean, uh, after working for him for two or three months, it got to a point where I said, look, I can't keep you know, crashing on my cousin's couch, no one will rent a room for me, you know. I tried going to a backpacker's and they just laughed at me. So Matt Massimo said, look, I don't want you to quit what you're doing and, ha- and have to move back home. I'll rent one of my rooms out to you and you can keep going with your apprenticeship, which was pretty incredible. I mean, especially being an apprentice and essentially a bit of a nobody, having this, you know, big, famous executive chef being, being willing to take a chance on you, it was it was pretty empowering at the time and it was, it, it made me feel really, really good and go, well, shit, if this guy's willing to, you know, give, give me a shot and go, go this far out of his way to see me be successful, I better, I better make something of it. And, you know, it was, it, it definitely wasn't easy. And he, he went out of his way to, to coach me. And there definitely was a lot of tough love needed in there. I mean, I, that's when I was always thing like Hugo's had never had an employee under the age of 18 before back then. So I remember, I think I was 15 or 16, and I was, I was drinking in the bar one night, you know, hanging out with everyone and having a great time. Everyone just assumed I was this 18-year-old kid. And then a week later, I think it was like my 16th birthday or something like that, <laughs> and Massimo and everyone in the kitchen were going around going, oh, happy 16th birthday, mate. And I, th- I think it was um, Dave Evans or maybe it was the bar manager or someone went like that went, hang on, he's just turned 16. He was in the bar the other night getting pissed. <laughs> <laughs> And and there was definitely what you call a lot of tough love from there. I think I, I think I was relegated to um to being the working in pot wash for the next month or so. But yeah, look, there there were things like that that just as a as a, as a teenager you'd do, and then yeah, you'd have to just figure your way out from it. But you know, he yeah he he was definitely a huge guiding influence in my life, and especially going on from there to work at um, Mamafuku, which was definitely a um. A, t- a turning point for me. I mean, Hugo's and Massimo were, were huge, huge educators and a great starting ground. But when Mamafuku first opened, there'd, there'd never been a restaurant like that in Sydney before. And, you know, it was a very um, hard and intense place to work. But it was also a huge, huge learning ground. Being that young working there, um, yeah, it, it, it was insane. It was, it was, just, a, it was just a whole other world to get used to. And again, that that saw me 
saw me get given a chance I probably shouldn't have. I think I think I applied to work there when I was about 16 or 17 and obviously it was part of the Star Casino and they'd never hired someone, you know, under 18 before. So I went in, did a trial, applied for a job, you know, got it. They, they, they offered me the job and then I think it was Clayton Wells um, called me up one day and I, I ended up crying straight after I got the phone to him because he went, look, sorry, mate, like I, d- I didn't realise that you were under 18, the stars said we can't hire anyone under 18. And then I can't remember whether it was when I first walked in or then Clayton saw on my resume that I'd worked at Lock Hill House and I think he'd, he'd spent some time in Courage on growing up, knew it, and somehow called me back a week later and said, hey, we've, we've managed to get you in. Yeah, uh, which, which again was a, a huge roller coaster for me and and getting used to working at that that level under people like Ben Greeno and Clayton Wells and, and Chase Levecki and all the incredible chefs that then were derived from um, from that environment was was pretty amazing. You know, and at, at that age learn, learning those things and seeing stuff, you it was hard to understand or put into perspective. Do you have any stories of what it was like in that, that kitchen and, and the impact that it had on you? It was a it was a really, really um I guess harsh environment and the, the, the like mistakes just weren't weren't ever an option and the hours the hours were definitely huge i mean we were talking prior to all, all the recent things that were going on like we were working 80 90 hour weeks and it was it was insane and you you didn't realize at the time especially being so young you lack the maturity to understand what's actually going on you almost just think everyone's you know against you or being mean to you for the sake of it but it's almost, and I, I can't remember how Ben worded it to me one day, but he went, "Look, one one day there'll be a moment, and it'll all click, and you'll realise." And it, and it was exactly like he said. Like I I'd left there a few years later, and I remembered. I think I, when I went into my first kitchen after Mamafuku, and I was still an apprentice then, and I was running rings around, you know, chef to parties and sous chefs. I realised, holy shit, that's that's why. Tell us about your time after Momofuku. What were the real sort of uh, important moments that sort of put you on the, the trajectory that you've been on? Um, look, towards the end of, of Momofuku, I got pretty um, interested in pastry and obviously Ben had a, had a background as a pastry chef as well and he'd, he'd be really, really into showing us and, ma- and making sure we had a curiosity with it. So as I finished my savoury apprenticeship, I actually started a pastry apprenticeship as well because I'd, I just decided I wanted, I never wanted to be one of those chefs that went, oh, no, I don't know how to do pastry. That all just seemed a bit silly to me. So I started a, a pastry apprenticeship straight after I finished my savoury one and then went on to work for um, Jerome Lagarde when he opened um, Ananas in the Rocks back in the day. And then, yeah, look, and he, he was an, a pretty interesting fellow. He was very, very, you know, old school French, definitely definitely probably not right for a restaurant in Sydney in hindsight. I mean, I remember my job for the first two months was literally he, he would stand on the meat pass, his sous chef would stand on the um, fish pass, and they would each have a commie chef or an apprentice next to them. Its entire job was just to reach down, get plates out of the hot box and polish plates. <laughs> Which, you know, for a restaurant in Australia just isn't, it's not, it's not realistic and it was, it was a bit wild, but, you know, it was also a pretty fascinating time to kind of see that, learn a lot. And I ended up going, um, going back to Mamafuku afterwards, having learnt 
learned a bit more and also being able to kind of appreciate some of the lessons I was taught at Mamafuku. And it was a really, really good, um, it was a great learning curve for me. And then later on, I'd end up going back to Ananas, but under a gentleman called Paul McGrath that used to have um, Bistro Ortolan in, in Leichhardt and King's Cross and Two Hats for a number of years. And Paul was another, I guess, Massimo or Ben. He, he was a huge, huge guiding influence in my life and he was one of the first people to teach me about the importance of oops. He was absolutely amazing. I remember him him and um, his sous chef, Marty, they used to, you know, have to go to Leichhardt every week and pick up the pasta from this Italian lady in Leichhardt that used to make the pasta for us. You know, we'd, we'd use 100 different farms. The meat would come from feather and bone. I mean, all, all, all this care and love that, you know, you just you generally wouldn't have seen in very many restaurants back then. He was, he was already doing it. Taught me a great deal about about produce and the importance of of provenance and, and flavour and care and also a lot about simplicity, you know. How did the job come about with with icebergs? Um, look, toward, towards the end of Paul's tenure at um, Ananas, I, I wanted to move on. Paul had actually set me up with a um, with a job at uh, Astrance in Paris under Pascal Barbeau, who, who Paul used to work with at a, at a restaurant called Ampersand in Darling Harbour um, ye- years before I, I was probably even born, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but, yeah, Paul had set me up with that and I just kind of needed something to tide me over for the summer. Um, this whole time I was doing my pastry apprentice- apprenticeship as well. I wasn't earning very much money. So I was working my days off at, um, at Chef's Armoury under a guy called Lee Hudson that owns Chef's Armoury, a Japanese knife shop. Yeah, so I was working my days off for him and started off because I wanted to learn. Ben drilled into me from a young age at Mamafuku how important properly sharp knives were. So I, I just decided I wanted to get really, really good at that. So I asked Lee if I could work work my days off at Chef's Armory and in exchange he'd teach me how to sharpen knives. Yeah, so I'd, I'd do that on, on, on my days off and through that I ended up getting to meet, you know, chefs would come in to buy knives. You know, that was, that was the only kind of really incredible Japanese knife store back then too. So that's where every good chef went for their knives. So I, I got to meet some pretty pretty incredible people that I'd end up calling calling friends in later years, and and one of them was Monty. I managed to meet Monty there just before he took over at Icebergs. So I re- I'd remembered that when I was moving on from Ananas, and I, I went down to Icebergs one day and just dro- dropped my resume in, and Monty got in touch with me and ended up doing a trial there, and and said, "Hey, look, I've I've got three or four months. I'm planning to move to Paris in um, in February." Um. Yeah, uh, can you have me on board just just to help out over the summer? And he was completely on board with it. He was so so supportive, and that that's how it all started. And then Monty again became a, a huge huge kind of guiding influence in my life. When I um when I came to Icebergs, I was an incredibly angry and quite um quite vicious young man. Just because that's that 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 was the environment. I guess I'd I'd been taught or the way I'd been taught. And Monty probably had a bit of that in him when he was younger, but he'd calmed down quite a lot. And he he devoted quite a lot of time to, I guess, re- refining me and, and calming me down and, you know, having hel- helping me find ways to get the most out of people without necessarily, you know, 
screaming, yelling, and and, and all of that kind of nonsense. So he, both him and Morris kind of took a, a an, an angry young man that could cook and really, really spent a, a lot of time, I guess, refining me and, and honing me back. And in that as well, Monty taught me quite a lot about the the love of produce, which which I'd already had from from Paul. But Monty would then do things like go to Carriage Works every single Saturday to visit um, Alf Sorbello to pick up um, pick up heirloom tomatoes for the restaurant for the week. So I then I then tagged along with him for a few weeks doing that, and then I took over doing that and going to Carriage Works and becoming friends with growers and producers and and learning the importance of understanding the um, the entire journey food takes. I suppose. What did it feel like when you were handed the reins at, at Icebergs for the kitchen? Look, it was it was pretty amazing to be honest with you. I mean, I I remember I found out so Mont- Monty promoted me to head chef. I think I was the I think I was around 20, 21 or twenty two at the time when Monty promoted to me to head chef, and we we, we were both on a trip doing Tasting Australia in Adelaide together. Um, the current head chef had resigned. I was in a role as a, as a group sous chef at the time. And at first I was, I was, I suppose, a bit terrified and I kind of went, no, like I like the role I'm in now. I like, you know, floating around doing a million different things. And he goes, no, look, this is, this is the next step in your career. You need to take over there as head chef and that I promise you, you won't regret it. So I, I did it and of course, I, I I didn't regret it. It was a it was an absolutely incredible time of of growth and learning for me, and I was lucky enough to you know have Monty and Jackie, I suppose, over the top of me and and kind of coaching me through what would otherwise be a pretty um pretty incredible learning like a pretty tough learning experience. They were there to to help me through that, and and so was Morris. I mean, I I remember saying back then I couldn't believe Morris had handed the reins of of this you know. 18, oh, it would have been a 15 or 16-year-old two-hat restaurant at that time to someone that was, you know, 21 years old. It, it would have taken a great deal of foresight and trust from him, and that's that's definitely not lost on me that, you know, who, who, who in their right mind hands a restaurant with that much history over to a 21-year-old kid. But it, it, it all worked out, and then when, um, when Monty and Jackie moved on um it was again it was a it was a pretty natural progression from there and and monty was great in the lead up to it you know kind of coaching me through what i what i would need to do next without him and that it would be a an incredible another incredible stage in my career and morris equally so was thing going no look you've you've been doing this for so long now you got this you know and the the only thing both of them said to me was just make it your own now wow you mentioned the importance of uh, connection to great produce and producers. Do you have any, have any any stories of the producers or connections that you've made? Yeah, look, one one great one was early on in my tenure. As, it was probably actually even before I became head chef of, at Icebergs. I was, from my time at Chef's Armoury, I was fascinated in um, Japanese culture and food and I'd, I'd learned bits of it at Mamafuku and around and stuff like that. And Monty and I decided we wanted to develop this crudo program where, you know, we'd obviously have Italianish flavours but treat the fish like, you know, like a sushi master or an incredible Japanese chef would treat it. So 
getting getting that knowledge would be pretty tough. So I ended up going to um to the fish markets and getting introduced to a, a man by the name of Narito that ran Piermont Seafoods. So I would, I'd go to the fish markets at least once or twice a week at you know three or four a.m. in the morning, meet Narito, and we we weren't even able to buy off him at that point. It was literally just to meet him, and I'd go there and hang out, look at the fish he was doing, look at what they were doing. And he later introduced me to um, Toshi, who back then was from Masuya. And and Toshi, again, was pretty incredible in, in sharing his knowledge with me. And, you know, him and all, all of his staff back then from Masuya, they used to have their staff meetings at a, at a cafe at the fish markets every single morning at like 4 or 5 a.m. He used to let me sit in them and then, then I'd walk around the fish markets and I'd get to see what was going on with, with both him and himself and Narito. And I'd learn things like... You know the all-important um, green paper that you use to store fish on. It's not, it's not quite baking paper. It's definitely not go-between. You know, it's just absorbent enough that fish doesn't sit in its own liquid, but it's not so absorbent it dries it out. You know, small things like that. How to how to age tuna and their process for for aging tuna and and what it would do to the flavors of it, and especially their their handling and the pretty incredible friendship. But it was just one of those funny funny things that you kind of had to go to, go through to earn the respect and, and have people understand, no, no, we're, we're serious about this. And we ended up being the first, I guess, Western restaurant that, that Narito supplied to. You're an incredibly uh, busy chef with lots of projects going on at the moment. How do you maintain a work-life balance? And, and have you sort of worked that out yet? Look, I haven't. I have one, one thing. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I decided to move down to Jeringong on the south coast. And that's, it's about two hours south of Sydney. And as soon as anyone found out about it, they said, you're absolutely insane with, with how much work you do and, and what you do. And part of me thought the same, but I, I was just stubborn and said, no, look, I'll, I'll make it work. I don't care. I've dealt with, you know, doing 100-hour weeks before. This won't be any different. It's fine. And what it actually ended up teaching me was to um, to value my time a little bit and and devote time to certain things properly. So whereas living in Sydney, I used to I constantly moved around to be close to where I'd work, and I would always you know book things in on my days off or if you know if it was my night, I, I just didn't really care or value my own time. I was just solely devoted to to working. Whereas moving down south has taught me that, you know, if, if I'm going to do things, it needs to be in the time that I'm in, in Sydney. And I'm still as, as devoted as ever, you know, and there, there's still, there are times when, you know, I'll have to be doing six or seven day weeks or working nonstop in Sydney and things like that, which I still manage. But the, the two hours on a train each day has been pretty, pretty eye-opening me to do a lot of my office work, my admin, all that kind of stuff. And it's actually freed, freed up my time a lot more. And it's it's made me a better manager of time, I suppose. And it's made me figure out, you know, different pillars in life that are unmovable. Like I I do need, you know, a certain amount of time with, with my wife and son to, to be a, you know, to be a husband and dad. I do need to devote a certain amount of time to, you know, spending time with producers and looking at new things and, th- and thinking about how we can do things differently. And then I also do need time for myself. Like I, I, I do jiu-jitsu every single week now and, and kickboxing every couple of weeks, which I've done from a young age. And, and those, are, those are pillars in my life that aren't, aren't really movable. Like I need... I need those things in my life because that's 
for me, it's always been finding activities I can do without having my phone on me, <laughs> you know. And so, like, for, for years while I was living in Bondi, I used to love going um, going snorkeling and diving and stuff like that because you can't possibly have your phone on you. Well, you're involved in so many extraordinary projects and your influence is in, in, incredible. What, what do you love about what you do? I suppose I love that it's constantly humbling. You, there's nothing that you ever know 100%. You know, as soon as you get good at something, there's something else to learn or there's another thing at play that can affect it, you know. Every, every single challenge is a really, really humbling experience. And as I get older and I've, I suppose I've had more apprentices underneath me, I genuinely value seeing people that have worked with me go on to do incredible things. It's, And I, I suppose I know now why people like Massimo and Paul and Monty and Ben all put so much um, care and, and time and effort into me. It's because going on to see people that have worked under you or grown, grown under you or, or learnt from you, going on to see them do incredible things in their life is one of the most fulfilling things you can ever do. Well, Alex, it's absolutely incredible to catch up with you and hear just a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Amazing. Thank you so much, mate. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.